Why Do Things His Way? That's the title. The painting that was a tease for this is Caravaggio's painting of uh, Calling of St. Matthew, and it seemed particularly appropriate since the main text is going to come from the Gospel of Matthew. Probably inside our minds, where our attitudes are, wherever that is down in the, the brain and the mind, we have raised a question that I, we've raised it, but we might not have dared to bring it up to the conscious level and said it out loud. Why do I have to do what God says? Why do I have to do it his way? Maybe he's asking too much of us mere mortals. What he's asking is irresponsible. Or probably more likely think, maybe this is okay for some saintly soul somewhere, uh, but not for me. I can't make it. It's, it's impossible for me. So I'll, I'll, I'll sort of assign this particular teaching to the, the world of optional. I'll try to compensate best I can with something I'm a little better at. So, you know, I'll take this one or, or leave that one of his instructions behind. Now, I think those questions are in our minds. You might deny it, but I'm going to tell you it's in your mind. Because <laughs> you're a being with a free will, and you're a being with a, a sinful nature. Uh, so even if you don't let that question rise up and say, why do I have to do it God's way? I think it's probably there. I think sometimes like with, you know, if you were an older brother or sister or you're a parent or a teacher, you probably have heard, heard the, the call, uh, somebody, uh, what they've said, you know, like, who says? Who says I got to? Well, make me. You're not my boss. <laughs> that kind of thing. And you think, well, you know, we might not dare to speak to God that way, but somehow I think some looking down in our hearts, that's what he's hearing once in a while from us, whether we'll admit it or not. That's in essence what we're doing. Well, I want to look at that this morning. And I want to look at it, and I think a good place to sort of see this unfold comes from the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew. So we're going to take that question, why do I have to do it God's way? And uh, then we're going to look at God's way in the Sermon on the Mount. I think the Sermon on the Mount is one of the most important parts of the Bible for Christians to know well. It stretches across three chapters. You probably know this, chapters 5, chapter 6, chapter 7 of the Gospel of Matthew. And it both describes and prescribes what Christian life looks like or at least strives to be. And I think we'll see that as we dig into it, or if we looked at it closely, that the tension I was talking about earlier uh, would be there. We'll wonder, why do I have to do all this, or, or can I even do all this? Is this even possible? Maybe there's a way out of some of this. Now, I think the Sermon on the Mount has to be understood really in two ways. It describes what we are reaching for. Our, our standard. I mean, we know it's kind of out there as a goal, something in front of us that we don't attain, but it also describes what's happening to us, where, where we're the recipients of it, in a sense, passive, in that the Holy Spirit is shaping us, us this way. This is the picture of what we're becoming or what we should be coming. And so the Sermon on the Mount, you see a, a work in progress, and it's a work both by us and on us, if you will, and that's how we see it. Now, on one level, you look at those three chapters of the Sermon on the Mount and you can draw a great deal of comfort from them. I mean, if you read it selectively, it would just, uh, oh, it'd be such a, a kind and comforting uh, three chapters, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, 
tells you not to be anxious. And it tells you why not to be anxious, because God cares for you. And it'll teach you how to pray and what prayer should be made of. But then you read the next verses and you see the challenges begin to arise early in the program. And you'll recognize that in yourself anyway, you probably haven't always gone along with the program, shall we say, peacefully. The sermon tells you not to lay up treasures on earth. It demands that you forgive, that you serve. It demands that you hide your piety rather than display it. The sermon tells you to love your enemies, tells you to reject divorce. It tells you that to call your brother a fool is enough to send a person to hell. You think, take note, social media, take note. The sermon tells us to be ready to over-cooperate with hard demands, unreasonable demands. If anyone bid you walk one mile, go two. If they ask you for your shirt, give them your jacket. You can hear the heckler in the back of the crowd, but I've got my rights. Jesus just seemed to keep talking. He didn't, didn't even address the heckle. You see, the goals are high. Why? And when considered together, you think, well, that's way beyond me. It's way beyond anybody. Who could do this? But I believe... That proper Bible, proper Bible interpretation says, you try this, you aim for this, and you surrender to this in life. If you really want to be a Christian, if you really believe in Jesus, if you really count on him to save you eternally, then you are signing up for this Sermon on the Mount program, and there's no way out of it. It comes with him. And so it's not a cafeteria where you walk down the line and say, I'll have a little bit of this and a little bit of that. I mean, it's, it's one plate and everything's on it and you get it all and it's yours. Well, as I say that, then I think, well, I've got to be without judgment here. Uh, I have to be. I have to be careful. The Bible teaches us that since this is something happening to us, that we're in process and it's on his timetable. Rob has pointed out in the last uh, sermon, right, Romans 14, who am I to judge the servant of another to his own master? That servant stands or falls. Stand he will. The Lord is able to, to make him stand. Well, if you can read the Sermon on the Mount with no sense of personal conviction, then you are certainly more godly than I have ever been for even one minute in my life. Because I fail, and I've failed many times to have a life that reflects, at least in its totality, the Sermon on the Mount. The best I've done is sort of overcompensate here and there. (laughs) I have some claim that, you know, keep the hope alive that this is happening in me, working in me. So I have to try to be without judgment. But I have to say, when when I see lots of the world confessing Christianity... The problem isn't that they're saying, well, I try and I fail and it's happening to me. It's that uh, they haven't even begun to try and they wouldn't even know that that was what was happening to them. I wonder if the church has ever taught them this or if the church has sucked them into some kind of tribal community religion that's really about social life and politics. It's not about connecting to Jesus. Uh, Oh, when we do that, I'm, I'm convinced, and I'm convinced it's widely being done in our world today. I think we take the name of Christ in vain. It becomes a game of of false piety, and we put faith on display, but we have little sense that to own the name of Jesus signs us up for the Sermon on the Mount. Well, what do you think? That's that's my opinion. Maybe I'm I'm just old and crotchety. I don't know. I, I hope I'm not, but what do you think? I mean, I'll say God is merciful 
I'll say I'm certainly a poor example, but beyond that, I suspect there's simply a lot of phony Christianity in the world. It might be a folk religion, or it might even become an intense cult-type religion, but what I don't see in it is the Sermon on the Mount. And speaking for me anyway, whatever it is, I don't want it. (laughs) I've surrendered myself to the idea that the Sermon on the Mount is the pattern, the goal, not just what I'm trying to do, but what is being done to me through God's Holy Spirit. Fail as I might. Toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we're in chapter 7 at that point, Jesus says some things that I think are supposed to be used as kind of the bookend, you know, to help, because he covers so much ground in the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, I can't cover all the different topics he goes to, but toward the end, he puts something there. I think, well, this, this gives us a sense of focus, how to, to, to pull this all together or maybe understand it. And so I want to start reading in chapter 7, verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as one of the scribes. And the Sermon on the Mount ended, and I'm astonished, just like the crowd, every time I read it. I had to wonder why Jesus brought up false prophets towards the end. Now, in the sermon, he pointed at false religion multiple times. But as an emphasized point, I think it told us that when you are looking for a relationship with God, you are vulnerable, vulnerable to yourself, in that you will easily want to substitute something which is false, and would probably come up with it all on our own, you know, without any help, just because we like to rationalize. But it's likely that there will be someone there ahead of you, and that will be a leader, clothed in a religious garb, ready to accommodate you, to comfort you and secure you in a false religion. And that leader may well be more than just a leader with a title. This leader may be a prophet. And history is filled with false prophets. They have dreams. They have visions. They talk in detail about mysterious spiritual things that somehow they know all about because of some sort of special advanced position of theirs, special revelation. They'll thunder from podiums. They'll 
They'll have blogs. <laughs> They'll be celebrities. But they're deluded, and they will delude you as well. So how do you know them? Well, Jesus said, you know them by their fruits. I've never been a farmer, but I've been enough of a poor gardener, and I've grown a few fruit trees, and I know sometimes fruit takes a while to show up. It doesn't appear right away. Sometimes it never appears. Jesus has just spent in this sermon a fair amount of time mapping out the Christian life. And if a teacher is teaching something else, then I think we now can identify them by comparing them to the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, even if they prophesied, did wonders, enters the kingdom of heaven. But notice, and I notice this time, the self-deception, the shock of self-deception that was there. It would appear that the people were involved were fully convinced that they had gotten it right. They had drawn a lot of attention to their own kind of religious activity and intensity. And this should sober us and cause us to constantly examine ourselves for some level of inauthenticity. Because it does imply for us, if not state directly, that we could march through a religious life that apparently, in spite of all its activity, is not connected to Jesus at all. I never knew you. I never knew you. But then you'd think, well, oh my. But it's not a mystery. He's just spent two and a half chapters telling you what the real thing looks like. The Sermon on the Mount just given to us is the real thing and how we participate in it. And uh, this examination of ourselves isn't, then isn't some sort of open-ended neurotic guessing game with, boy, I hope I make it at the end of the day. I mean, who, can, who will even know? We simply need to go back to chapter 5, verse 1 and start reading and see the real thing for ourselves and not blush, not fade away from it somehow or other. And aren't you glad that the very first things that comes out of Jesus' mouth in the Sermon on the Mount, he went up the mountain, he saw the crowds, his disciples came to him, he sat down and he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This isn't a threat, and it's not meant to be threatening. It's an invitation to all of us mere mortal sinners, the poor in spirit. I'm glad it starts there. If it started anywhere else, I'd be in trouble. From here, you go in the sermon to the fair, fair, from where we were with the false prophets, you go into that fairly well-known parable of the man who builds his house on sand and the one who builds his house on rock. Now, I, I didn't grow up going to Sunday school and stuff like that so much, so it's, uh, but I know this, this one from my kids. This is a great Sunday school lesson, wasn't it? There, there, it seemed like my kids had songs to match and all kinds of stuff. Everybody knew it from a, uh, an early age. It, it's such a clear analogy, right? It was so, so visible and, and uh, nothing obscure there. But I want to remind us this morning that this was not a children's sermon. This was the Sermon on the Mount, and the weighty teaching of the Sermon on the Mount precedes it. And I think it requires an adult mind to engage with due consideration these things again. This parable was told in Luke, by the way, as, as well, but with some uh, variations. And it seems to me that since we see that happening across Gospels with, with, with some variation, they're not reporting the same, same episode, that this is probably an illustration Jesus used fairly often in his preaching. Take note, for example, that it contrasts a wise and a foolish builder. Well, you know, the Bible has some things to say about wisdom and foolishness. This gets a lot of attention. But I want to point out, wisdom is not an intuition. 
It's not something you're born with. It's not something even in the children's sermon, right? I mean, with its own level, it can exist there. But what is wisdom? It's not a feeling. It's not easily and automatically acquired. Wisdom is acquired by dedication, time, experience. Those are probably things that prophets will tell you. You don't need that. I I know a shortcut. Follow me. (laughs) I'll I'll get you around all that painful process, lengthy process of acquiring wisdom. Just, just, Just trust me. I'll get you there. God whispered it in my ear. The wise builder builds on the right foundation. The wise builder reads the Sermon on the Mount and carefully considers what it means over the course of a lifetime and doesn't assume that they got it all down pat when they learned it in Sunday school. It's not obvious to you when you're 15 or 25 or at my age. You can build on sand. You really can. Let's go back to the opening question again, in case case you've lost track of it. Why do I have to do things God's way? The Sermon on the Mount, when you look at it, it almost seems like I've I've had people tell me it's naive because it's so impossible. Who's going to do it? Who's going to possibly live up to loving their enemies and turning the other cheek and going two miles and doing this kind of thing of not laying up treasures on earth? Why do I have to do it God's way? Well, I think we can race ahead to the conclusion that, well, you don't have to do it God's way. He's given you the option of not doing it his way. (laughs) I think you expect a Christian such as myself to say, but there there will be consequences. (laughs) You can't do it otherwise. And so, you know, you know how that goes. I mean, we always have, you know, both spiritually the right not to do it God's way and, uh, you know, politically you, you have the rights to be stupid and all kinds of things, you know, do all kinds of foolish things. I mean, no law can protect you at that point, you know. It's, well, and God, I think, says, you are a sovereign creature in this sense, but there are consequences. Let me give you an interesting puzzling thought. This will, this will appear like it's just going little bit obliquely from the sermon here, but it's not. It ties very closely to what this is. It's a really interesting thing to think about, and I don't think you'll find a, 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 I don't think you'll find a final answer. It's one of those kind of problems. Why does God say something is good or bad, say in the Sermon on the Mount? I mean, why does he do that? Well, you could say, well, it's God. I mean, he gets to say that. That's <laughs> comes with the office. Well, yeah, but but why? If something is good just because he says so, well, then you you could maybe you know could just imagine you go in your mind think, well, could he create a world that's just like the opposite world for us all, right? You know, just like yeah, here on Earth, you know, with us, you know, the sons of Adam, daughters of Adam and Eve. Um, you know, uh, stealing is bad, but in, in reverso world, you know, it's, it's thou shalt steal, thou shalt commit adultery, <laughs> thou shalt take the name of the Lord your God. Just, he can say it, he can do what he wants, he's God, right? You think, that, that doesn't sound right, because that doesn't sound like God, does it? I mean, it just sounds like to, to link him to arbitrary immorality like that would just seem kind of horrifying. On the other hand, you'd say, well, but if God... If something is right or wrong apart from God or beyond God, then is there some kind of like right and wrong floating around out in the universe somewhere that's actually higher than God? God himself has to answer to it. And then you think, well, that would make God less than God. And that doesn't work, does it? 
This is an old, this is an old dilemma. You, know, you, you, you get this in you know, basic philosophy classes and things like that. Um, and, and this is the point, you know, if, if I can be corny for a moment, you can argue about this since Hector was a pup and, and until the cows come home. <laughs> I mean, it's, it doesn't, doesn't ever finally fully settle. But I think most of, it can re, most of us can resolve it by saying that God wills something to be right or wrong, say the picture of a Christian life in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, and it could not be otherwise because it is rooted in his unchangeable character. In other words, it's not arbitrary. He doesn't just come up with things to see if he can test us. He won't change his mind, and it's not because there's a higher authority somewhere that he answers to, but what's right and wrong stems from who he is, his very essence and being as the most holy God. So that the book of Hebrews, for example, could say, uh, it is impossible for God to lie. And that's true, and that doesn't make, mean that God isn't all perfect or all powerful. You know, it, it, it doesn't do that. I don't know how what it was like for you in high school, but, you know, I constantly got those kind of questions. You know, could God make a stone so big he couldn't lift it? You know, and, and you know, my friends would do that. I mean, they, they think that was the ultimate defeater of, you know, Christian theism. I continued to believe, even after the question was posed to me. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, it doesn't mean, for example, that God can't lie, that he's not all-powerful. It means that God never speaks falsely. It just is not his character to ever speak falsely. Well, however you want to settle that question in your mind, I, I think it comes to us um, when we look at the Sermon on the Mount and we say, how do you live with this? Or can I live with this? Or why do I have to do it this way? And we realize there's no just because I said so which your parents undoubtedly said to you, and maybe you said that to your kids at some point if you were a parent, you know, because like, I said so. But th there's none of that going on there, really, with our God. Some commands, most of them, are rooted completely in a character that never changes. Others, in a sense, are commandments for his people that could change, but always rooted in his character again. For example, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, there are different commissions for God's people. Most of you this morning aren't keeping kosher, I'm pretty sure, or uh, doing any number of other things that the, the Mosaic law would prescribe for you. But even then, whether then or now, it comes to us uh, as rooted completely in God's character. What is faith? What is sin? Still rooted in the character of love for his creatures. It's said for us, for our own good, to make us happy to have us flourish in life, to be what we were created to be. And if a commandment or a teaching ever produces a kind of tension in us then, say, I don't, turn the other cheek. You can't be serious. You, know, you, you don't know my situation here. Well, then if you have a divided mind that wants to sin, it's, it's defying, in a sense, God's being. Sin is not going to, to, to work ultimately for you. I mean, it, Talk to any of us sinners, we'll tell you, eventually you regret all sins. They, they're only ever pleasing for, for short times in life, and then they, then they prove to be poisonous. But here's the blessing. Here's the blessing. You solve the tension in your life by realizing these are not just rules. These are not just hoops to jump through. 
These are paths to the best life there is, and they're rooted in the very being of God, and that we being made in the image of God, in a sense, have a, 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 a natural place becoming godly. First, uh, Second Peter, as his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. It, it's, it's our place. It's where we, we ought to go to be fully what we could be. So what about the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount in that regard? Why do I have to do things God's way? The church has found many theological ways of trying to dodge the Sermon on the Mount over the years. And an individual clearly suspends some of the teaching of the, the Sermon on the Mount from time to time and just say, I, not now, not now, Lord. Uh, you, you don't know what it would mean to walk a second mile. Uh, you, you don't know what it would mean to turn the other cheek or to forgive or to love my enemies. This person's beyond loving. But Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount all about a Christian life and said that to build upon this is to build wisely on rock, but to neglect his teaching is to build foolishly on sand. And so here, your belief about what he's saying really matters. God tells us things are right or wrong, wise or foolish, sinful or faithful, for a reason. And that reason isn't arbitrary. He made us. He knows us. And you might say he has the perfect view of what a human life could be. If he declares something sinful, then it's not merely to see if you will comply not merely there so you can see if you can struggle and win. It's so that you can avoid the damage that comes from it. He knows what heals and what hurts. In particular, he knows those things that are sinful that damage us spiritually and lead us, if unresolved, to hell. It's not good health advice. That he, I mean, it's not about your lungs and liver when you read the Sermon on the Mount. It's about your soul and where it ends up, you see. Uh, it's, some sins are pretty easy for us to identify. You know that. Pretty obviously destructive on a human level, but we have to look at those things and realize that all things that damage our relationship with God damage us, us, damage us deeply, deeply. And they lead ultimately to hell. We're capable of marching right into most sin. You know that. You're, no one is probably in more danger or jeopardy spiritually than the person who looks at some other sinner and says, I would never do that. Well, wouldn't you now? <laughs> How many Christians do you think have said that before you? I'm so glad, blessed are the poor in spirit. Forgiveness is built into this drama, but forgiveness is not a license, a building permit to go ahead and build your house on sand. There are consequences, as I said. Why do things God's way? Especially as laid out here in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, we do it because it's best for us. God wants what's best for us. If he tells you don't steal, he knows stealing damages the thief and victim. If he says adultery is a disaster, we know that adultery ruins and it will never do anything else. But these sins bring a deeper damage to us in that they separate us from God. And then once committed, they can't be undone really except by his forgiveness. Once again, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, you know I love abrupt closings, and here comes your abrupt closing. Don't blink. Sort of like driving through one of these little Ohio towns. Be gone before you know. Why should we do things his way? Because it's the very best way to do them.
The Sermon on the Mount tells us that we need to be doing these things. And if we don't, then great is the fall of the house built on sand when rains and floods come.